I'm Dr. Robert Scherzer, Clinical Associate Professor, UBC Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences, and we're talking about glaucoma for the week ending April 8, 2009. This week, I'm talking with Jeffrey Henderer, the Dr. Edward Hagap Bedrosian Chair and Professor, Department of Ophthalmology, Temple University School of Medicine. We are discussing lessons learned from putting the disc damage likelihood scale into clinical practice. Okay, welcome, Jeff. Rob, thanks so much for having me here. Part of the reason you're here in town is to present some challenging cases that you've accumulated over the years and discuss those. Any uh, key points that you'd like to bring up? Well, I guess that um, I've always been interested in trying to figure out how to take the best care of the common situations possible. I, I've, it's fascinating, of course, to study the unusual types of glaucomas, but honestly, day in and day out, it's bread and butter, primary open animal glaucoma right. that dominates your clinic. And if you're not an excellent caretaker of that type of patient, it's hard to know how you're going to make a living as a glaucoma specialist. So <clears throat> one of the things I've really tried to do and uh, this has been in conjunction with Dr. Spath at Wills as well as others at Wills, is to try and figure out, um, is it possible to uh, get a handle on glaucomatous optic neuropathy uh, in a way that might make it easier to identify earlier on in the disease and to perhaps make it a more effective sort of staging system uh, to correlate better with visual field and hopefully give you a better way to examine the nerve. So do you find that you're using the disc damage likeliness scale? Yeah, I think the scale has gotten to the point where we're pretty comfortable that the concept of looking at the neuroretinal rim in the context of disc size is a valid one. It's not entirely clear to me that the exact 10 stages of the scale are the 10 stages that you have to learn. But the concept is the most important, and that is to measure disc size and understand in that context what the cup or neuroretinal rim looks like and the normal pattern of neuroretinal rim width uh, and how that might change in early glaucoma. Right. So how would you bring this into use on a daily basis, let's say, with patients presenting to you? Yeah, actually, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, the, the first step is really to make sure that you're measuring the nerve size so you get an understanding of what you're looking at. And over many years, I suspect you can get a handle on it, but uh, it's so much easier just to measure the nerve size of the slit lamp using indirect biomicroscopy like you would do normally with a 60 or 66 or a 90 diopter uh, lens <clears throat> and just literally measuring the uh, vertical diameter of the optic nerve and then comparing that to a roughly normative, normative distribution of patients that we uh, looked at. Right. And uh, I thought that to do that, I use the 66 diopter because at least from what I remember, that's the one where it is a one-to-one -one That's ratio. true for the Volk uh, lens, is my understanding. That's you, pretty much right on the money. Do you know the correction for the other lenses that other well, listeners Well, the 90, the Volk 90, uh, which is a commonly used lens, is actually a 1.33 correction. So if you're measuring a 1.5 millimeter column of light, then you need to convert that to a 2 millimeter optic nerve. Okay. And a 60 diopter lens is about a point nine, roughly speaking, uh, 0 0.88, 0 0.9. And so you have to knock a couple tenths of a millimeter off when you measure the nerve size. Now, this really only works well for more or less two to four diopters of within emetropia. Right. But um, 
beyond that, when you start getting tilted optic nerves, it becomes very difficult to uh, stage the nerve regardless of what staging system you use. So we're really talking uh, kind of normal appearing optic nerves, which is fortunately the majority. Right. I guess my, my simple little brain can't handle something like a 10-point scale for uh, describing the shape of the nerve. But one thing I do find very practical is looking at the, the size, ba- mostly to, to say overall, is that a small nerve or a big nerve? Right. I think that you are correct in that the 10 stages in the scale may not be the ironclad way to do it. The, but the concept of right. measuring disc size is what you're talking about, and that's the key. And then looking at the neuroretinal rim and not the cup, because really what you want to establish is whether or not there's loss of neuroretinal rim tissue. That's right. what glaucoma is. And if you have a focal notching of the rim, that may not cause an enlarged or particularly large cup disc ratio. And yet you have classic glaucomatous optic neuropathy. And so you need to actually pay attention to that rim. And this rim-disc ratio concept, I think, highlights to a better degree the narrowing of the rim as opposed to the cup. So so we talked about the notching and the overall size. Any other points on the the DDL scale? Well, I think that the... um, the staging system is kind of broken down into small, medium, and large nerves. So what is acceptable in a small nerve in terms of neuroretinal rim width or cup is actually quite different than what's acceptable in a large nerve. So if you can imagine, uh, large nerves have large cups because they just don't fill as completely, even though there's a few more extra nerve fibers in a large nerve than a small nerve, people have found, but it's not going to fill quite as much, and there's just a larger uh, cup. So you can have, as Jost Jonas has found, a normal variation of cupping up to even 0.8 or 0.9, depending if you have a very large nerve. So uh, to understand the, the difference between Big nerves are supposed to have big cups, and small nerves are supposed to have small cups. If Even if you just knew that, that would go a long way towards helping to uh, differentiate between physiologic cupping and pathologic cupping. And a 0.3 cup in a small nerve is probably not as normal as you think it is. And by the same token, a 0.7 cup or a 0.8 cup in a very large nerve is probably not abnormal. Uh, then, there, of course, there's the pattern of neuroretinal rim width. And... Uh, Elliot Werner, I think, coined the term isn't rule for the normal pattern of neuroretinal rim width with the inferior neuroretinal rim supposed to be the widest area followed by superior, followed by nasal, followed by temporal. And it's violations of that isn't rule that can really help you out in uh, early disease. Right, and that's certainly a point we always try to make with the residents in training, how important that rule is. Yeah, that's, that's really critical. Uh, so really, you know, nerve size, focus on the rim, think about the isn't rule. Uh, if you can, look for nerve fiber layer defects, disc hemorrhages. Uh, if you can do those things, I think you'll have a pretty good handle on uh, trying to identify glaucomatous optic neuropathy. Right, and again, paraphrasing Jost uh, Jonas, he says to always basically presume there is a ner- a, that's a right, disc a disc hemorrhage, unless, unless proven otherwise. Is proved. Yes. That's right. <laughs> that's good advice. I, I think the, you know, at Wills, Dr. Spath uh, likes to say, you only see what you look for, that's and you only look for what true. you know. Yeah. And honestly, there's probably never truer words were spoken, right? I mean, uh, you just 
can't go into an optic nerve exam and blow it off. You, you probably can't expect to rely on optic nerve imaging with a machine to identify things like disc hemorrhages. It just doesn't work. You have to actually look at the optic nerve. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of um, the opposite of what I had originally learned in medical school, where we were first thrown in with patients and told to interview them before we had much of a knowledge base, because they, they wanted to emphasize that anyone could take a good history, and knowing too much could bias uh, how you take a history. But when it comes to the physical exam, we do have to know what we're looking for and to look for that. You're right, because there's only so many hours in the day and so many minutes you have at your disposal. And the reality is that you need a little checklist in your mind that you run through every time you look at the optic nerve or any other physical structure to see if it, you know, how it stacks up to your understanding of normal. Right, and in terms of explaining that and how we do it as specialists and for us subspecialists, so much of it comes down to basically pattern recognition of... We we know what we're looking for. We're looking for that pattern. and uh, Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, there is no MRI scan for glaucoma. There is no blood test for glaucoma. Uh, maybe there's genetic profiles that can be assembled that are likely to have glaucoma, and one day that may be very helpful. But honestly, uh, a glaucomatous nerve is thought to be glaucoma because I was taught it was glaucoma, and that's been handed down through the generations, and that is an understanding of a pattern of optic nerve change that is typical of this disease, uh, usually associated with interocular pressure problems or elevated pressure, but not always. Right. And uh, it's important that you don't uh, mistake um, glaucoma in, in the, if, or miss glaucoma in the setting of a given level of interocular pressure. If, you know, even you can get glaucoma with normal pressures, and people uh, miss that by the same token. Every day we see patients come in who are diagnosed with glaucoma who have elevated pressure but no optic neuropathy. And uh, that's, a different, uh, that's a different disease. Right. I always say when I see patients like that, today I saw a patient in for her reg regular check, her pressure of 34, uh, virtually no cup, totally normal visual field, and I just wish we could bottle whatever it is that's preserving their optic nerves <laughs> and use it for other patients. That's a good point. The optic nerve of steel, that one yeah, is, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's, that's a good point. Now, corneal thickness plays a role there, too, or at least some parameter that measures ocular hysteresis or something. Right. That, uh, you know, but it would be nice to know if there was something intrinsically special about that person's makeup that makes them resistant to the effects of pressure. Yep. Well, we covered a lot of useful points here. Any other parting words? Any other highlights of your years of clinical practice and research and hopping from one university to the other? <laughs> well, I, I think that in general, uh, I've been very lucky in my career. I've had some wonderful people help teach me, <clears throat> um, and I've had the opportunity to, to be at a lot of great institutions, and I have to certainly thank those people at Baskin Palmer and at Wills um, and at Hopkins who helped me out. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Jeff. Talking About Glaucoma is produced twice each month by Dr. Robert Schertzer, Director of the West Coast Glaucoma Center in Vancouver, British Columbia, and Clinical Associate Professor, Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences, University of British Columbia. Please send your comments to podcast at iguy.org. Check out our website at westcoastglaucoma.com 
and follow me on Twitter at Rob Scherzer.